My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, and blood support me in the whelming flood. When every earthly prop gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the veil. Well, good morning. You look very well rested this morning after an extra hour of sleep last night. It's good to have you with us. Those of you in, in uh, Skagit, thanks for joining. And those in Boca Raton, we rejoice with you. We had our first snow this week, and it's bitter cold, so we're happy for you in Florida. Good to have you with us as we're in this final week of our series looking at hope. We've spent the last five or six weeks on this whole concept of being anchored in hope. And just some bullet points from the series is when we talk about Christian or biblical hope, it's not a wishful thinking. It's not this, you know, well, we're hoping. It's a certainty. It's a life-shaping certainty. And not only that, but it's not just what we hope for. It's who we hope in. And as we've discovered, that our circumstances, our situation, does not determine our hope. That there's a hope that there are even habits that hope that we can grow in hope, that we can overflow with hope because we have a God of hope. And we are to be people who are the most hopeful. That this is a distinctive of someone who is a follower after Christ, that we would be filled to overflowing with hope. And so we've just been looking at what does it mean to be anchored in hope uh, in our lives and, and how we wait in hope. For the Lord, because He is our help and our shield. Now, there's a, a thing that's not talked about. I don't even know if it's if it's utilized as much uh, now as it was in the past, or maybe in different regions of the United States. I heard about it when I was a little kid. Uh, we grew up in in Louisiana. Maybe it's a thing of the South. I don't know. But it used to be, and maybe it was from a more traditional time of, of life, it used to be that a common practice for a young lady is that she would have a hope chest. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that thing, you know, it's, and, and as best as I recall, I never had one, of course, but um, lane cedar boxes or what have you, they have this hope chest, and, I, and I'm sure it had a lot of different reasons, but the concept was that here was a young lady, and in this hope chest, she would start putting things away because someday her prince would come. And that there would be this day when they are happily married into this lifetime of bliss and she would have silverware for that, whatever. So, but there was this hope chest and, and the whole reason was setting aside with this hope that someday her prince would come. Okay, not, that's not really what the sermon's about. But, but I thought about that in the concept that in the Old Testament, God's people, his, his family, his nation, his, the Israelites, they had a hope chest as well. They had a hope chest, a box that had some stuff in it, and this box was a hope that someday their prince would come. And they took this hope chest everywhere they went. When they wandered around in the wilderness, the hope chest was there. 
when they camped in the wilderness for 40 years, as the 12 tribes would camp around the tabernacle, in the tabernacle, there was the hope chest, there was the box. As they entered into the promised land, as they crossed the Jordan River, what went first? The hope chest. As they marched around Jericho seven times, the hope chest. As they set up the temple in Shiloh, there in the temple was the hope chest. As the temple moved to Jerusalem, there was the hope chest. They had this box. It's referred to as the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you will remember that from Indiana Jones days back in, in the 80s, what have you. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there in the Holy of Holies, in the, t- in the temple, there was a spot on this ark, on this box, called the mercy seat. And one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of that year would go in with the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed and make atonement, and this was a hope for them that they could have atonement from their sins, and there would sprinkle the blood on this mercy seat. It was not just a hope for that year, the here and now, but it was a hope that their prince would come, that the Messiah would come, and he did. There had been this promised one that was coming and this long-awaited one. And in, in Hebrews, some of you may remember a few years ago when we studied Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7, it talks about this one, this prince that would come. It would be Jesus, and he would come in the, in the order of, of Melchizedek. And in chapter 8, it talked about how he would be not just a high priest, but the great high priest. And in chapter 9, it talked about not just the blood of, of bulls and rams and, and lambs, but it would be the blood of the Lamb of God, of Jesus himself, And it wouldn't be an annual sacrifice. It would be the final sacrifice that the prince had come and the hope had been fulfilled. And then in chapter 10, we read these words, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. The one who promised there would be a Messiah that came. He was good for his word and he was faithful. And today we continue to hope, not with a wishful thinking, but with the certainty that our prince will come again, that the prince of peace, Jesus, will come reigning, the king of all eternity. That's the hope that we hold on to. That's the hope that followers of Christ have held on for 2,000 years. That's the hope that the people of God have had for thousands and thousands of years. Not everyone has that hope. Not everyone even wants that hope. You've no doubt heard the name Friedrich Nietzsche, 130 years or so ago. Friedrich Nietzsche is, is probably best known for the phrase, God is dead. That's kind of the, the every man's understanding of Nietzsche, God is dead. It had to do with his concept that, that we, we invented God, God didn't create us, that kind of thing. I, in fact, a couple years ago, I saw a t-shirt and it said, God is dead, in quotations, with the attribution to Nietzsche. And then below it, it said, Nietzsche is dead, with the attribution to God. So, I mean, it's kind of, kind of an interesting t-shirt. Anyway, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to make light of a man's death. In fact, his life was very, very tragic, actually. He lost his faith, and then when he was 44 years old, he lost his mind, literally. And then when he was 55 years old, he lost his life. But Nietzsche said this. He said, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. His whole concept is this. Life is very, very difficult. Death is inevitable, God is dead, and there is no hope. But Scripture and God's people have always seen things quite differently. That it's not the, not the worst of all evils. That hope, in reality, is one of the greatest virtues because it allows us to endure, it allows us to be steadfast, it allows us to stay, sustain and even to redeem the torments of life. 
See, you contrast this, con- this idea of, of hopelessness with God's word, where there's hopefulness, where God's people are to overflow with hope. Contrast Nietzsche with someone like the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah recognized that life is difficult. He doesn't stick his head in the sand. He doesn't deny the hardships of life. In fact, Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet for two reasons. One, he came with this passionate plea for Israel, weeping, please return to God. Please turn away from your evil ways. Get right with God. There was just this compassion for his people and this passion for the message of God. But he was also a weeping prophet because his life was very, very difficult. No one listened to his message. They rejected him. They threw him in prison. One time they threw him in a nasty, deserted cistern and left him there. And in his life, it being so, so difficult, he even wrote not just the book of Jeremiah, but he wrote a book called Lamentations, which translated could be Deep Mournful Wailing and Weeping. Could you imagine writing a book called Deep Mournful Wailing and Weeping? How would that title do on the New York Times bestseller list? So he writes this book of deep wailing and mourning, this Lamentations, and in this book, he does not deny the reality of the hardships of life, even his own life. In Lamentations chapter 3, he says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness, the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Now, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you may remember the sons of Korah and the psalm they wrote in Psalm 42. We looked at this two weeks ago. Very similar line. Very possible that Jeremiah is calling to mind Psalm 42 when he writes these words. My soul is downcast. Remember that? Why so downcast my soul? Why the despair? And even in the reality of of his heart just being heavy with the burdens of life, he says, "Yet, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. That he has taken one of the habits of hope that we talked about, He has cultivated a mind that is dominated by a truth that brings hope. He says, yes, my situation is desperate. Yes, it's difficult. There's even bitterness within me. But I have decided that I will set my mind on a truth. I will set my mind on something else that brings hope to my life. And then he says, this is what I bring to mind. This is what I I intentionally, willfully set my mind on this truth. Very famous words when he says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord. We are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, including this morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. And I would just say right now, on the authority of God's word, our heavenly father would have us to be a whole lot more like Jeremiah and a whole lot less like Nietzsche. People of hope, overflowing with hope. You know, maybe that whole uh, no-no thing is more than just a bumper sticker. I mean, you've seen those bumper stickers, N-O, God, N-O, peace, and then K-N-O, God, K-N-O, peace. You know, if there's no God, there's no peace. If you do know God, you do know peace, that whole thing. And maybe that can be applied not just to a bumper sticker. Maybe it can even be applied to hope. That if you, if you have no God, you have no hope, as Nietzsche would say. But if you truly know God, 
then you will truly know hope no matter what your circumstances, that you would have that. And Paul reminds the church in Ephesus, he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, like you were distanced from God, you weren't a part of the team, you weren't a part of the family, you weren't a part of this nation, you, you, had, had exclu- you were excluded in the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. No God, no hope. That's the reality of of things. And the psalmist comes along and he says, but the converse is true as well. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He's my source. And then look at this. We've been talking about hope being the anchor for the soul, as it says in Hebrews 6. Look at this deep anchor he has. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. And then he just pleads, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge, an anchor for our soul, a hope even in the most desperate of times. That's the hope we've been talking about. That's the hope that God has called us to. Four years ago, actually four years ago this weekend, uh, my wife and I were, you know, were in Boca Raton. We, you know, we talked about Boca Raton. The, the whole, and I won't go into all the details, but the whole connection with this Trinity Church of God in, in Boca Raton, Florida, comes because of a woman named Linda who is in that church. And Linda was the flower girl in my parents' wedding. And her parents... Um, uh, Farrell and Charlotte Berry were good friends with my parents. They went to college together. They went into ministry. Farrell was a pastor. My dad was a pastor. In fact, one year, Farrell served on my dad's uh, staff in Vancouver, Washington. I remember that as a little kid, knowing them all our life. So four years ago, uh, the, the church in Boca Raton invited me to come down and preach live because they watch every week you know, on, on the screen. And they said, why don't you come down and preach live? And so they, they uh, invited us down there. And one of the things I really wanted to do while I was down there was to talk with Farrell Berry. He's still alive. He's, um, at, at that time, uh, well into his 80s. And, uh, and so we got together and, and reminisced about some old times, and I asked some questions because my memory was foggy about some stuff as a child and, and these things. And at the end of all that, uh, our time together, because here's Farrell, he's into his 80s, and he's spent his whole life in ministry and got great perspective and great wisdom. I said, Farrell, um, as, as a now a man who spent your entire life in full-time ministry, wh- what would you say to a, to a guy like me who, who's a pastor? He says, Bob, I'll tell you what I tell all the young pastors. <laughs> I thought, the man has great wisdom, great insights. I was 50 at the time. I'm a young pastor. I love this man. He said, Bob, people come to your church every week, and they need a word of hope. Life is hard. They've been beat up, kicked around, pushed down all week long, and they need a word of hope. And then he went and he says, you know, I look back on some of the sermons I preached early in my ministry and just beating people over the head and making them feel worse about themselves. I wish I could go back and give them a word of hope. So that isn't just a feel-good sentiment. That's what God's word does for us. And that's not something Pharaoh just made up. Today, as we, as we conclude this series, I want us to look at the words of another preacher, a pastor who brought to his people a word of hope because they needed it because life was so difficult. 
And today, as we conclude this, I want us to look at a little letter in the back of the New Testament. It's written by, by Peter. And if you have your phone or your tablet, you can just type in 1 Peter. If you have the old school Bible with, with pages, it's way in the back, tiny little thing. You're going to have to search around. I'll give you a little background, give you some time to find it if you want to follow along. We're going to be looking in 1 Peter. It's a letter that Peter wrote. Most people believe that when he wrote it, he was actually the bishop of the church in Rome. Now, you remember Peter had been one of Jesus' disciples, tried to walk in on water, that whole thing, denied Christ. This was Peter. Now he's writing this letter, and he's writing the letter to, to Christians, mostly who are from Rome, but have been scattered around. I alluded to this last week, that when Nero, in about 64 AD, Nero, when Rome started on fire, Nero started this widespread persecution of, church, of, of Christians. Christians were the target of this persecution. And there was immense suffering, there was great hardships, and even cruelty. So when Peter writes this letter, it's sent out to all these places in Asia Minor because people have been chased out of Rome by Nero and his, and his persecution. And they've lost their homes, they've lost their businesses, they've lost all their money, and some of them have lost family members, and that's just the lucky ones. Because Nero's cruelty was off the charts. You know, we, we, we sometimes glamorize the gladiator games. Nero would take Christians as a, the, the gladiatorial games. He would put them in unarmed and have the gladiators destroy them, kill them. He would take Christians and he would wrap them in the skins of animals and sew these skins on so they couldn't take them off, put them in the arena, and then let wild animals and wild dogs go loose to rip them apart limb by limb. Nero would take Christians and wrap them in pitch, put them on poles, light them on fire to light up his garden parties at night. The cruelty of this man was insane. And it was all targeted at Christians. A little side note, with all of this persecution, with all of this suffering, the Christians did not denounce their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing resolve that they had. So their lives are in a desperate, desperate situation. So Peter writes in this letter, and right off the bat, he knows they need a word of hope. They need some encouragement. In fact, the whole letter of 1 Peter is all about how to suffer well and to follow the example of Jesus. And he talks about how they've been chosen by God and how his grace and mercy is abundant. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us New birth into a living hope. Because of the mercy of our God, we've been given a new birth, and he may be referring to what Jesus had said to Nicodemus years before, you know, unless a man be born again, you're born of water, born from your mom physically, but there's this birth in the Spirit, there's this new life in Jesus, and he says we've been given this new birth into a living hope, and that's what they needed. They needed a living hope that is good for today. They didn't need a hope from yesteryear. They didn't need a hope that, that expiration date was, was done 20 years ago. And they didn't need just one way off in the future someday. They needed something for here and now. And he says, we have a living hope. And to that you think, well, is he just trying to encourage them, just trying to hype them up, just trying to pump them up? I mean, on what basis can he say that? Karl Marx said that you know, religion is the opium of the masses. Is that what this is? Is this hope just kind some, some sort of a, some sort of a masking agent? Just say the words to anesthetize the, the suffering and the hardships that they're going through. Just kind of make them numb to the realities and at least kind of see them through another day. 
Not at all. He says, there is a reason that I can say we have been given a new birth into a living hope. Something that validates it. Something that gives it credibility. Something that gives it teeth. He says, we've been given a new birth, a, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember, this is Peter. Peter had walked with Jesus for three years. Peter had heard all the, the, the lessons. Peter had seen all the miracles. Peter felt the sting of failure when he denied Christ and cursed him and said he never knew him. Peter felt the hopelessness when all hope was lost, when Jesus was crucified, when he was laid in the tomb, when he went back to fishing on the Sea of Galilee because the whole dream was gone. The history of, of it all would be, would be all just in the past. He knew that. And Peter experienced the resurrected Jesus. And it changed everything for him. It changed everything for all the disciples. In fact, when you begin to realize this, and if we had time, I'd show you uh, scripture after scripture that validates this, that Christian hope is directly tied to the resurrection of Jesus. It's directly tied. This isn't just a, let's kind of build ourselves up with positive thinking. It says, no, no, this is because of the resurrection of Jesus. There's this if-then. If God could take the worst horrible uh, event in all of human history, the death of Jesus on the cross and the burial, if he could take that and turn it around and redeem it as a hopeful thing, if he could do that and bring life out of death, then no matter what we face, God is able to take that same resurrection power and redeem it for life in our lives. In fact, later, and we don't have time to look at this, you can read it on your own, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says to them, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you hold. In a word, what's the reason for the hope that they hold? Resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus. And not just our hope. <laughs> All of Christianity is predicated on this fact. You know what this is? This is Easter Sunday in November today, people. You're getting the Easter sermon today. Listen, either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. There's no in-between on this one. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. You have to determine somewhere in your mind, somewhere in your thinking, somewhere in your belief, somewhere in your conviction, either he did or he didn't. Either he is alive or he isn't. And if he is alive, if he did, was raised from the dead, then what he said is true, what he said can be trusted, and what he said we should put all of our life and eternity on. And if he did not then what in the world are you even doing here today? It's a waste of your time. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, listen, this is so important, this resurrection of Jesus. Not just for our hope, but for our life, for our faith, for our eternity, for our ministry, for our message, for all of it. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Any belief that you have, if Christ isn't raised, it's a waste of time. Not only that, you are still in your sins. There's no forgiveness for you. You're still in your guilt and in your shame and whatever you're going to have to do to try and resolve that in your own mind. On top of that, those who have fallen asleep in Christ that we have hope for, they're lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 
if Jesus only gives us a little bit of hope for our days here on this earth, and that's the end of it all, man, we have been sucked in. We bought in. We give in to the conspiracy theory. We're so naive. We're idiots, he says. We're pitiful. People ought to feel sorry for us. Look at those poor naive souls. They'll believe anything. He says, but the resurrection of Jesus is what validates the living hope that we have. New birth into a living hope. And he says, and that's not all. He goes even beyond that. He says that we've been given a new birth to a living hope. Next slide, please. Been given a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and, but wait, there's more. Kind of like Ronco knives or whatever. But wait, there's more. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Remember who he's writing this to. People who've lost their inheritance. People who no longer have their business, their life savings, their home, their families. They don't have that anymore. It's all been taken away from them. He says, but you've been given new birth, not only into a living hope, but you've been given new birth into an inheritance. As I was thinking about just the beauty of this, this whole idea of new birth, not only into the living hope, but new birth into an inheritance. Think about being born into an inheritance. Now, I'll just admit, I'm not one, and, and listen, I, I don't want to offend anybody here. I'm not one who follows and is enamored with the royal family. No disrespect to Her Majesty, the United Kingdom, none of that. I don't stay up all night watching weddings on television. I don't put money in pools trying to decide which the gender will be of the next royal baby. I had to go online to find out what William's wife's name was. I don't follow this. It's Kate, by the way. See? <laughs> Prince William's wife is Kate. This is why you come to church. You learn new things. Prince William's wife is Kate. She's pregnant with their third child. I don't know. Apparently, you guys didn't know this either, so I'm telling you this. She's pregnant right now with her third child, and there's all kinds of speculation. And depending on how, how like, substantial the news source, it's a man, it's a boy, it's a girl, it's twins, it's triplets, it's a baby Sasquatch, whatever. But she is, she is pregnant. And I thought about in 2018, when she gives birth to this child, this child will be born into an inheritance of royalty, of wealth, and of great privilege. I ask you, what has this child ever done to deserve the inheritance of royalty, wealth, and great privilege? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And Peter comes along and says, by the mercy of God, by God's grace, by his love, by his goodness, he has given us new birth, sons and daughters, birth into an inheritance of royalty, not of the queen, but the king of kings, that we are his sons and we are his daughters. And I could go on and on with scriptures that talk about how we are heirs of God, been given new birth into this inheritance, and it's an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Um, about a week and a half ago, I ran into a friend. I hadn't seen him in years, and we got talking, and somehow the, the conversation went to um, a, a, an establishment here in, in Bellingham that now sells uh, Festool uh, power tools. I don't know if you're familiar with Festool power tools. I wasn't, but apparently they're like the Mercedes-Benz of power tools, and apparently they cost 
like the Mercedes Benz of power tools. And he was bemoaning the fact that his dad was spending all of his inheritance on these new Festool power tools that, that he's loving. And I'm thinking, well, at least someday you'll inherit these tools because if they're that good, they should still be working however many years from now. About a month ago, my mom called my brother and I together and he sat us down and she turned 80 this fall and she said, now don't worry, there's nothing wrong. And she said, but I could drop over any day now. That's like, my mom's just a positive thinker. And part of it, part of it, as an octogenarian, her friends are starting to drop over like flies right now. Anyway, so she's telling us about this, and here's where the will is, and here's these orders, and if all things happen, you know, this is what I'm going to be leaving to each of you kids, and all this stuff. This whole idea of inheritance. Here's the reality. No matter what my parents or your parents or any relatives leave to you, the inheritance that they leave to you will someday perish, spoil, or fade. And if it does not... You will. You will perish, spoil, or fade. And Paul, or Peter comes along and says, listen, you've been given birth into a family, a royal family with an inheritance that the second law of thermodynamics does not touch. There's a hope for a lasting inheritance. And he's trying to help them have this eternal perspective because if all we think about and all we look at is the reality of our here and now, our life on this earth, we miss out on the beauty of what God has called us to. He's trying to help them see that, yes, your inheritance here on this earth may be gone. You may never get what you worked your whole life for and your parents did as well, but you've been given birth into a lasting inheritance. It's back to that whole thing that while outwardly, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, outwardly we are, we are um, wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day because, he says, our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. He said, I want you to change your perspective. It's not just life here on this earth. It's what God has for you. When Paul writes to the church in, in Ephesus, he wants them to see this too. He says, I pray that also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, this week, Friday, I went to see our most senior saint here at Cornwall Church, Helen Kristen. She's 104 years old, still lives in her own home, very, very sharp. I went to see her, sat on her couch, and um, I don't want this necessarily to invoke any kind of guilt on you at all, but if it does, so be it. <laughs> She's 104, and she said, Pastor Bob, I've been trying to memorize that Psalm 33, 20 through 22 that you challenged us to memorize. <laughs> well, side note, the Bible says, your word have I hidden in my heart, right? right. She said, I, I've been trying to memorize that and I have it, I've, I've have it inside, I just can't always find it. And then she said, because I'm almost 105. I'll give her a pass. <laughs> so we sat on her couch, and we said it together, kind of helped each other out, worked our way through that. And then she began talking about the hope and how she watches uh, every week online in the 11 o'clock service. She tunes in for the live stream. 
just talking about this series and the hope and what a wonderful thing it is and, and how now at, a, at 104, and, and she said, it, it could be any day now for me. And she says this with great joy. And then as she was talking, without missing a beat, without saying anything, she just began, she broke into a hymn and just began to sing these words, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. What a day, glorious day that will be. And then she sang some hymn in Swedish, and I don't have a clue what that one was about. <laughs> but as I sat there with this 104-year-old woman who's been given new birth into a living hope and an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, she lives with this hope today and with the certainty of what's waiting for her on the other side. That's the hope. That's reality. And a little side note, some of you say, well, you know, I'm not sure this whole heaven thing, harps and clouds and white robes, I don't know, that that sounds boring to me. Me too. I don't want that as a heaven. And I don't think, I think that's all metaphorical. When you think about this, take that moment that you've had when you've experienced immense love and joy from family or friends, when you've experienced not just physical pleasure but soul satisfaction, those moments when there's just intense beauty and meaning and purpose in life, in those moments, could those moments be glimpses of what it could be like for all of eternity? Because those moments happen even in a fallen, junked-up, sin-filled, broken world. But when Christ comes, he brings a new heaven and a new earth. Can you imagine what that would be like? Forget the harps and the clouds. It's the inheritance. And this inheritance and this hope, not only is it, is it validated by the resurrection of Jesus, and I don't even have time to go into this, but, but in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, God has even put a down payment, a deposit, to guarantee your inheritance. He's already put some earnest money in on it. God has deposited within you the Holy Spirit to guarantee this. He says, I'm putting some skin in the game now so you can count on it. And then he says, and Peter says this, it's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. This whole thing isn't just a theory. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a theology. It's very, very personal. See, we've spent six weeks talking about this. Talked about the theology of hope. Pastor Kip talked about hope and grace. We've talked about hope in the midst of temptation. We talked about the habits of hope, the determination of hope today, the cornerstone of hope. And you can know, understand, and articulate all that. You can even memorize Psalm 33, 20 through 22. You can even tell all the psychological benefits of having hope in your life. You can talk about it. But it doesn't mean anything until it becomes yours. It's really pretty useless until you start making theology your biography, taking the truth of God's word and let it be the reality of your life. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. It's mine. It becomes personal. And listen, I just want you to be honest with yourself. 
if you've not been given new birth into a living hope, if Jesus is not the anchor for the hope of your soul, would you honestly ask yourself these four questions? Then who, what, or where is my ultimate hope put in? And just be honest. And when you determine where your ultimate hope is, then ask these questions. Is there any worst case scenario that could ever be faced on this planet that could have possibly take that hope away from me? And another question. Is there any possibility that 20, 50, 70, 100 years from now, whatever I'm putting my hope in right now could possibly perish, spoil, or fade? And a final question. Whatever I'm putting my ultimate hope in, will it still be my ultimate hope to see me through on the other side of the grave? See, there's only one hope that can truly be the anchor for our soul, for our life, for our eternity. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the hope that he brings. And Peter finishes this off. He says, kept in heaven for you, for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So much in here. What this is not saying, what this is not saying is that if you're given new birth into a living hope, that somehow you're exempt from hardships in life. Remember who he's writing this to. It's not saying that, that somehow now you're going to be insulated from any kind of suffering, any kind of pain, any kind of injustice, or any kind of growth. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that you'll be surrounded by the power of God and that no matter what you face, no matter what circumstance you go through, no matter what situation that you find yourself in, no matter what season you walk through, no thing and no one can ever take your hope from you. And no thing and no one can ever touch your inheritance. And he's saying to them, listen, the loss of your home and your jobs and your family, that can't take your hope and it can't touch your inheritance. Nero, in his cruelty, cannot take your hope and he cannot touch your inheritance. And maybe for us, we ought to say, listen, that cancer cannot take your hope and it cannot touch your inheritance. That bankruptcy, that failed business cannot take your hope and it cannot touch your inheritance. That divorce cannot take your hope and it cannot touch your inheritance. No matter what you face, even death doesn't have the final say, doesn't have the final word when it comes to your hope and your inheritance. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. See, when it seemed that all hope was lost, the foundation of the hope of the followers of Christ was found. And for 2,000 years, Christ followers have built their hope on this fact. The cross that killed hope, the tomb that held the dead hope, this tomb, this box of death, where hope was laid to rest, it seems hopeless with this box of death. But our God and his sovereignty and his power and his goodness said, that's not a box of death. That's a hope chest. And one day your prince will come.
And three days later, our prince came back. And the tomb that was supposed to be the dead end of hope became the womb of the birth of an eternal hope, a living hope that could never perish, spoil, or fade. How can he say this? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'll just say this to you. If your hope is in anything other than Jesus Christ, why not today? Transfer that hope. Put your hope into that which will never fail, which will last, which cannot be taken away, which won't fade, which will see you through. And just today, maybe just to say, Jesus, I want to live in the, in the living hope of your resurrection. And forgive my sins, lead my life. I, I want to follow you. Today would be that day. And today as we end this service and we end this series... We're going to participate with what the followers of Christ have done for 2,000 years. We're going to remember this cornerstone of our hope. And today we're going to take communion. And as we take this, not only communion, the elements, but it's, if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, the communion of saints, meaning this unifies us with our brothers and sisters who've gone before, who were and who are, and actually who will, will come, who are to come. And so today, what I want us to do is this, and the ushers are going to start passing the elements. I'm going to ask that you take the elements and you would hold them. And and one little thing, you're welcome to participate in this. We would ask this, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't put your hope in him, would you please just let these go by? Better yet, would you put your hope in him and take these elements? We won't make a big deal of this if you feel like, I'm, I'm just not there. Just honor this and respect this. But we'd ask that you would take these elements and just hold on to them and just remain seated because I want us to do this together today. And uh, for just a few minutes, Kathy and Corinda are going to sing a song. You're welcome to sing along, but just remain seated and thank God during this time for the new birth into the living hope that he's given to us and then I'll lead us after they sing this song.